Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Peds Sports, a podcast dedicated strictly to keeping you up to date on the literature and controversies in pediatric orthopedics and sports medicine surgery. I am Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and I am joined by my co-hosts. We've got Neeraj Patel from Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago, Pamela Lang from University of Wisconsin, Cordelia Carter from NYU, and my partner down here in the Crescent City, Dr. Dominic Gargiulo, another pediatric sports medicine specialist at the Children's Hospital of New Orleans. Now, before we jump into the material, I just want to say it has been way too long since our last episode. All of the POSNA podcast work has been caught up in some other shows, especially after the annual meeting, but I am so glad to be back here with this crew and getting back to what's important. I've been looking forward to this episode for a while. I always learn a lot from this crew, so let's get started. First up, we have a pair of articles from San Diego, Rady Children's Hospital about trochlear dysplasia. We're going to start with the more straightforward one. It was in JBJS, and uh, basically, the authors looked at a skeletally mature population to check out their trochlear dysplasia. You know, as the authors point out, surprisingly little is known about trochlear dysplasia, and the authors looked at uh, the patients with ultrasound. And I haven't used ultrasound for this, but the authors describe a pretty straightforward technique. They show some clear pictures. So uh, it's a good presentation. It's, it seems very feasible if, if there'd be some clinical utility in your clinic, but they basically found that 10% of the general population has what they would call severe trochlear dysplasia. And these patients with a severe dysplasia were 11 times more likely to have a history of instability symptoms. Were you guys surprised at this at all? 10% of the general population with severe dysplasia of the trochlea? Yeah, it seems like a pretty high number, but uh, with as many people as we see with just, you know, vague symptoms of anterior knee pain and patellofemoral symptoms, maybe there's a correlation there as well. And, you know, it was a pretty straightforward article. The other one's going to get into a little more theoretical stuff. So same group of authors. Uh, let me see. Is that true? Is the exact same? Almost the same group of authors. Uh, same senior author, Andy Pinnock. Um, we might not need to just rename the podcast after Andy Pinnock right. at some point. We, we can't have an episode <laughs> without him contributing something, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so it came out at about the same time, but uh, this one was in JCO, Children, uh, Journal of Children's Orthopedics. And instead of looking at the mature patients, they looked at uh, the complete opposite end of the spectrum at the very immature patients. They got all the babies that were being screened for DDH with ultrasound. And they moved the probe down to the knees and looked both at the, the acetabulum and the trochlea. And they found lots of trochlear dysplasia in breech patients and those with DDH. So um, the author suggested that it may be more developmental, not so much congenital. You know, maybe having the joint located helps it develop. And uh, lots of breech babies have knees extended. So the patella doesn't necessarily spend as much time in the trochlea as it should. And maybe that's why this trochlea dysplasia is developing. And um, the authors also uh, suggested a pavlik harness could be a good treatment for newborns with trochlear dysplasia. So what do you, what do you guys think? At this point, it's mostly theoretical. It's really kind of exciting. Could we, could we prevent this really prevalent uh, disease? Um, so I, I might've interpreted it to say that it was the really severe ones. I might've chosen the sulcus angle rather than the trochlear depth. I, I, and I think that'd be more reflective maybe. And of like, of, you know, a smaller percentage that had really severe 
dysplasia, but I think, um, you know, I think the coolest thing that this article brings up is, is this something like, you know, if we're, if we're going to sort of completely shift our, our framework of thinking on patellar instability as something that is developmental rather than, you know, rather than just congenital, then, you know, is a pelvic harness then that's worn for somebody who's got developmental dysplasia of the hip actually going to be able to form a trochlea or is there some other orthosis or modality that we can use to, to prevent those problems, right? Which yeah. they did for, they mentioned in the paper, but it's, so it's not my novel idea, but I think that's, what's really cool about it is it's, it's sort of like, maybe it will give us a pretty easy tool to intervene early as well as diagnose. My only comment about the other one, which looked at mucher patients also using ultrasound, but I mean, truthfully, both, I mean, both of them, and, it, and this is, you know, coming from the same institution, it's really also just, you know, demonstrating that this is something that can be done, that we can like pretty reliably study the morphologic bony characteristics of that may predispose to teller instability in adults and infants alike. And like, that's pretty cool, right? That to have like a point of care testing, you know, at your fingertips. And then the rub with ultrasound always is that it's so user dependent. And that, and that would have been my critique with some of the one that's at the JBJS one, the adult one was that um, like, I wasn't quite sure where the inter-rater reliability was coming from. And then and they comment on that, you know, that that's a, that that's a weakness and, and something that is an inherent, an inherent weakness to ultrasound. The only thing too, is you can, um, I just noticed this because you can see that it's a 65% of the patients that were included in that one were female. And I don't think it's because they were the ones having knee pain. They were the ones who bring in the kids to the visits, right? So, <laughs> right. Um, Good point. So, but that's, I mean, that's important to know, who, like from whom you are recruiting. And so it's not necessarily reflective of a telephemoral problem, or, or maybe it's over-reflective knowing that females are more likely to have one. Yeah. Um, I think that's a, a great point you bring up about the reliability, though. I will say when I looked at the article, they have sort of pictures and describe it. And I, I was thinking to myself, this, this looks a lot more straightforward than uh, taking an ultrasound of the hip. Yeah, I think this is all fascinating. And there's got to be something to it, right? The sort of developmental aspect of it. And I wonder, you know, the future is, can you figure out a way, you know, we've kind of established fairly well, what are the risk factors for, for DDH, right? Yeah, female, firstborn, breach, so forth. Can we come up with similar risk factors for patellar instability, which is in some ways a little trickier, right? Because even if you have, let's say, trochlear dysplasia when you're a newborn, we don't necessarily know super well what the natural history of that is, you know, through adulthood. I think these papers give us nice snapshots, kind of like beginning of life and adulthood, but kind of like what's the in-between there, right? And so if somehow we're able to do that, like have kind of like a natural history sort of thing and come up with solid risk factors, I think then you, you start talking about preventive measures and screening and, you know, these kind of things. And um, can we make an impact that way? I think we're, we're a bit away from that, but certainly this sort of opens the doors to some of that thinking and maybe to some of that work. And I think, I think it's very interesting. And I think just to sort of piggyback a little bit too, um, it seems like the trochlea is kind of like the present in the future, right? I mean, there's a lot of talk about more talk now than there used to be anyway about trochleoplasty and these kind of things too. So like, you know, let's say we've missed the boat to intervene when you're newborn and now you've got severe trochlear dysplasia, um, you know, kind of what, what does that do to you? And if there's patellar instability involved, how much does the trochlea matter? When do you actually need to intervene or not is the other part of the question, as opposed to uh, when the dysplasia is present. So it's a whole other conversation. And I guess, you know, it'd be interesting to see what people think about it, but also don't want to take too much time because I know we've got a bunch of other uh, papers to talk about.
you know, for the hip anyways, um, you know, there's this kind of well-known, well-accepted the acetabulum develops because the femoral head's in its place. So is there something that's similar with trochlear dysplasia and trochlear development where it develops when the patella is seated appropriately? And, you know, we also kind of follow certain rules for acetabular development of like so much percentage is done by this age. So if you're going to do a pelvic osteotomy for a hip to kind of prevent an issue down the road, we kind of have some guidelines for the age you would do that. And we have nothing like that in terms of patellar stabilization or when do you need to get a patella in a trochlea in order for the trochlea to actually respond and develop. Um, so we don't have anything to go off of from that standpoint. And quite frankly, I don't think we have as good of techniques to try to keep a patella located, particularly in young patients. So, you know, is it kind of futile <laughs> to even try that? But it's, it's interesting for sure. But yeah, I think it, if it's something you can follow with ultrasound or uh, radiographs or whatever it may be and kind of get a natural history and natural development, um, I think some of that's been done in animal studies, but I'm pretty sure it hasn't been in humans that I know of. Yeah, I think that's that's the tricky part, Pam, like you're saying. I mean, getting that natural history stuff and figuring out what happens when and, you know, what happens if you intervene versus don't, that kind of thing. Um, but the other thing, I mean, just to sort of Okay, keep, keep it 100, you know, right? I, we, we know that the consequences of dysplasia potentially are early arthritis and these kind of things, which are a little more debilitating, I would think, for a lot of people than, you know, your kneecap popping out. That's the other part of it, right? Like, we could do all this really cool work, but at the end of the day, also, like, what is the risk reduction that we are then potentially uh, causing by, like, intervening early and stuff like that? And is the are you getting your bang for your buck kind of thing? Um, so as much as, you know, we love patellofemoral stuff and the instability thing, and, you know, we, we do these operations um, on kids now, I mean, I don't know how much uh, impact that would necessarily have um, compared to like DDH, where we know, you know, getting a total hip when you're 30 or 40 is not ideal. Um, I don't know that the natural history of patella or of a trochlear dysplasia or even frank patella instability is necessarily quite that severe. Um, but still very interesting stuff. And I think, you know, we're all into it. So I'd be curious to see where this goes. Great points, Pam. I'm going to give that some thought about, you know, what's the, what's the, uh, sort of analog of the procedures we do to get the hip back in the socket? Would you be, you know, like transferring the patellar tendon or something at, at a very young age to try to, I think to it's being maybe more aggressive it? with guided growth. I mean, that's one thing, right? Like when we have a kid who's skeletally immature and a recurrent patellar dislocator, if they're not an, a candidate for a tubercle, you know, a, a, a tubercle osteotomy, we can, at least I've gotten more aggressive about in the setting of valgus guided growth. I mean, I think maybe that's the analog to, to osteotomy, uh, you know, in the hip or, you know, I think bony when, when soft tissues aren't enough, you have to actually change the, the bony morphology to allow that to develop. But, but then, and then it's interesting because then you have to wonder if like the window is going to close, right? Actually before they're candidates for a, a tubercle transfer. Right. Or, or you know, if we're, if we're talking even at a younger age, like the analog of a pelvic harness, are we talking some kind of orthotic situation, right? Where, you know, it's like a patellar stabilizing brace of some sort or taping, Who you know, I, I don't know. I think this is all completely sort of uncharted territory. Yeah. Um, or, I mean, and, as the authors point out, or are you just putting that many more kids in Pavlix. Now we get, if we got two diseases, maybe every baby gets Pavlix, you know, vitamin D in the water and Pavlix for everyone. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> 
All right. Well, let's, uh, as hard as it is for us to let the trochlea go, let's uh, move on to the next article. This one's in JBJS about timing of ACL reconstruction with authors from HSS, Rainbow Babies, and Geisinger. And, um, you know, I think we all learned in training that ACLs tend to be associated with lateral meniscus tears acutely and more commonly medial meniscus tears from walking around on an ACL deficient knee. The authors found that the longer you delay ACL surgery, the more likely you are to get that medial meniscus tear. And interestingly, helpfully, they narrowed it down and estimated about 2% per week uh, risk of a medial meniscus tear when you don't have a uh, intact ACL. So they recommend against delaying ACL reconstruction. They also found the risk was worse for obese male patients and using crutches before surgery seemed to be protective. So um, how are you guys handling the timing of ACL reconstructions? Everyone basically doing prehab to get the motion back. And does this, this knowledge change anything for you? I think this um, is something that I wish I could send to all of the other, whether it's primary care physicians or other orthopedists around the state and region that end up telling kids like they have to wait till they're older to have their surgery. Mm. And, you know, I, I can't, it's amazing how often that still happens and how often I'm seeing patients for the first time. And they're already, you know, three to six months out from ACL injury and whether it was delayed workup or just being told that they weren't a candidate for surgery yet. It's amazing how prevalent that seems to be for me anyway. I had one today, literally this afternoon, um, same exact story, an older community based, uh, adult orthopedist had a 15 year old kid with closing growth plates and said that, you know, they should wait until the growth plates are closed. Um, I mean, exactly that consult today. Yeah. And I mean, I had a, I had a tricky one and maybe that's part of it where it was a kid who's a 12 year old by their skeleton, but you look at it and it's a man, right? Like Hmm. this is a humongous individual, but like, you've got to do something. This is the kid who's like, they're big enough. They're going to have low velocity knee instability just from stepping off a curb you know? Um, so you, I, you can't not do something. And I realize they're still very immature, but um, that's, that's where things come into play. And like for that kind of kid, have you guys run into that situation before where you've got a, a very, very skeletally immature kid, but they're just a gigantic size for what you would normally like have as part of your, you know, completely physeal sparing ACL reconstruction? And did you do anything differently in those situations? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of proceed, you know, the same way, right? I think the, the whole idea of delaying and all that, I mean, that, that's sort of out the window uh, since the advent of spicelosporic techniques. And I still prehab them, right? And I think you know, going back to Carter's original question about, you know, does this data uh, make us rush to the OR? I, I don't think necessarily, right? Because there's still plenty of data that clearly shows well-established that rushing is not a good idea either, you know, with an infusion, stiffness, quad weakness, so forth. So I think it's still a matter of balancing all that. Um, and also, you know, so I, I, these are, a lot of these guys are buddies of mine, you know, Pete and Justin and Mark and all that. And so uh, love them. They're amazing. But so, some of this data, I think we've, we've known, right? Like we know that <laughs> delayed care results in more meniscus injuries. And so, um, you know, I, I, I'm happy for them. I'm proud of them for getting this to JVJS, no question about it. And I support everything they do, but 
um, we, we, we know some of this, right? And so I think like, especially in the present company, um, this is like, well, yeah, this is, we know it and we, so we proceed accordingly, right? We, we don't like delays and so forth. Um, I think to me, uh, the, the, maybe the biggest take home, honestly, was that the use of crutches decreased yes. that incidence yeah. of miscarriage, right? So to me, I'm like, oh, that's good. Because to be honest, before, if I had a kid who were prehabbing and so forth, and they're starting to feel pretty good, they don't have any municipal pathology on MRI. I'll tell them, obviously, like no running, jumping, pivoting, fall prone stuff, whatever. But I wouldn't necessarily always tell them, like, use crutches right. um, until surgery. Um, and maybe that was wrong. So, <laughs> you know, uh, my fault if it was. But, but yeah. since seeing this, yeah, I see Cordelia is raising her hand, so I'm glad I'm not alone. But no, yeah, since no, seeing yeah. this article, since seeing this article, like, I've kind of sort of told all my kids, actually, believe it or not, um, to, to just use the crutches until surgery. And I think it's a pretty low risk sort of thing to tell them maybe um, they don't like it but beyond that there's pretty low low danger in just using crutches right so nothing else that slows them down a little bit um so anyway for me that was kind of the biggest uh, uh sort of little take-home pearl of advice that that i got from it i think i i completely agree i really appreciate that you said that because i sort of looked at this and said wait we already know this right it doesn't this doesn't qualitatively change the conversation and i think they sort of say like our aim was to quantitatively change the conversation like rather than you know this the discussion i think all of us had with patients was the longer you go from injury to surgery the more likely you are to have um, associated injuries of your meniscus and cartilage and the more likely they are to be severe and irreparable and so and so that that's how we think about timing but it wasn't, um, it wasn't like we could say for every 10 weeks, it's a 2% increase. And so I think it, it allows us to quantify that a little bit, but it doesn't really, it doesn't change the actual message in terms of what was the recommendation. And I, I completely agree because it, it's funny, they didn't, they didn't put it in their conclusion that crutches may mitigate, right, some of these, these injuries uh, developing, because I think that that, that would be that the thing that most of us would take home and maybe change our practice maybe that would decrease the risk of instability episodes, but prolonged non-weight bearing. Actually, I've seen some stress fractures after OCD, you know, OCDs, after OCD surgery that was, that followed, there was a failure of non-operative treatment. And so, you know, I, for every, you know, there's, there's no problem we can't make worse, I guess. I think the crutches too, is a little bit of that, not necessarily non-weight bearing, but using crutches, right? So it's the way that I oftentimes am treating OCD lesions or in a post-operative setting where, yeah, I can make someone weight bearing as tolerated, but if I tell them they have to use crutches, they're less likely to play basketball. Yes. Right. Cause like you can tell these kids to not do these things, but they're like out playing with a friend, they're going to do them. Right. So it's treating the patient and it's recognizing that it's a kid and it's somebody who's going to feel better from their injury before they're better. And so the fact they have to carry crutches around might change their activity. Would you rather they, I, I, I think they get crutch fatigue. So then to me, I would rather they got that fatigue um, way, way after surgery than in like the first three weeks post-op. And so, yeah. right. I, I think, yeah. um, cause so that's why I, I give everybody braces and the, and the, and the prescription for, you know, for activity modification and, and I talk to everybody just as we all do about, you know, the gold standard for identifying meniscal pathology is an is diagnostic arthroscopy. We always expect it and, and, and oftentimes find it, even if it wasn't on your MRI. But I think, um, anyway, I don't know. I'll, I'll try the crutches and see. 
but I, but I do think there is crutch fatigue, just like there's physical therapy fatigue. And so you have to sort of pick your battles. I, I agree. Cordial. And I will say post-op, I've definitely run into brace fatigue too. <laughs> you know, yeah. these kids are like, Oh yeah, I stopped wearing it. And you're like, Oh, so I, I don't know. You know, I think, but, but to Pam's point, I think a lot of these things, and even the brace, right? Like post-op, for example, there's been plenty of literature now that shows that bracing probably isn't necessarily post-op and so forth. So a lot of the stuff, yeah, like theoretically, scientifically by the book, by the numbers, maybe you don't need to do it. But I think there's something to be said in this population, especially about just kind of slowing them down, right? And so this is just <laughs> put a little bit of quicksand under their feet, even if not, you know, if it's not scientifically like the, the uh, biomechanical thing you have to do. Um, the other thing I just, just add real quick is um, we, we also know that insurance status um, is related to uh, the, the frequency of meniscal chondral injuries as well as the, the type. So um, they didn't include that here, which is just another thing that I think you know, we all need to be aware about. Obviously, these things impact each other, uh, the timing of surgery, right, delay, insurance status, uh, and all that. But um, these things have, found to be, have been found to be independently predictive of meniscal pathology. So just nothing to keep in mind. And I'm sure that's something that um, a, lot of, a lot of us have seen in, in real life as well, the impact of all these different variables. Well, that that's could not have been any better segue. So from there, we will go to uh, an article in AJSM by uh, the esteemed senior author, Niraj Patel. I, I didn't mean to do that. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this is uh, entitled, the, the authors basically asked the question, does insurance status affect treatment of children with tibial spine fractures? So we will pivot, no pun intended, from ACLs to tibial spine fractures. And this is the tibial spine fracture research interest group, which we've touched on before. And I guess, first of all, what's sort of the, the structure? Is that through PRISM or is that just a separate entity? What, what's sort of the background of the work? Yeah, sure. So um, it, it's through PRISM and it's, you know, volunteers. So anyone that's interested in joining can join. doesn't matter, uh, <clears throat> you know, where you're from. Specialty-wise, even we have PAs uh, and stuff like that involved. So anyone can join through PRISM. Uh, interestingly, you know, as we start, and, and this is a little bit of a segue, but we're starting, we started a prospective cohort study as well, tibial spines, multi-center. And so as we started that, it, it, we've, we've sort of been expanding beyond just kind of like the prism sort of structure, I guess. Um, and so there are slowly being, uh, we're bringing into the fold folks that maybe aren't necessarily part of the rig or like active members of prism necessarily, but are interested in, in the prospective study or have something unique that they can contribute to it. Um, and stuff like that. So I think it is slowly taking a little bit of a, um, a transformation in, in the prospective part of the study, but the, the group itself is, is through PRISM. Very cool. Cool how these things evolve and grow. So this was a uh, large study, 10 institutions, 434 patients. And like most of these studies about insurance status, the results were uh, unfortunate and somewhat depressing. Children with public insurance like Medicaid waited longer for MRIs and for surgery for their tibial spine fractures. Interestingly, they are also more likely to be casted after, which we know causes more stiffness. Um, Niraj, what are your, what are your takeaways? What, or what, what should the uh, audience be taken away from this study? Yeah. So, you know, the, the impetus for this was, I think just um, my, my own practice, I think 70% of my kids are, are have Medicaid. And so I, I take care of a lot of kids that anecdotally seem to be <laughs> affected by a lot of these issues. And, you know, we had just been talking about ACL stuff and we know clearly for ACLs, that's well-established that insurance status plays a role. So the thought was, well, you know, if insurance status affects the care of all these other pediatric sports and, and fracture uh, injuries, then um, if you take a rare injury like a tibial spine, which is, 
you know, potentially more likely to be missed, you know, the diagnosis is more likely to be delayed at baseline just by the nature of the injury. Then you mix in insurance uh, with that. To me, I, I almost assumed that this was going to be what we found. Um, and so, you know, we have the results as they are. Um, obviously, it's not perfect. It's, res- it's retrospective. It's a large number of tibial spines, but there's, you know, there's issues with any retrospective data collection. We were limited in terms of just how, like what, what kind of outcomes, clinical outcomes we could really, truly identify longitudinally here. So the impact of insurance on outcomes after, after surgery for these or after treatment for these fractures is, is not really clear based on the data that we had. But I think it is still eye-opening just in terms of like the timing of treatment, the type of treatment and stuff like that. And again, it's just another piece of data to tell us that uh, there's issues in, in this country and our society in terms of uh, who gets what kind of care. Um, and I think it, it behooves us to try to figure out ways to, to, to make that better. And that's Certainly complex and, and, and difficult in, in a lot of different ways, but um, I think the, the conversation starts now at least. I um I don't know how you would necessarily do it, but I think it'd be really interesting to try to be able to follow how many different encounters or how many different interactions with healthcare there are because I get the sense that that's part of the problem, right? Like there's an initial like urgent care visit and then there's this referral back to maybe a primary care physician and then another one and then maybe a referral somewhere that gets declined and then like a bunch of steps to get to where you're actually seeing someone to take care of you as opposed to like, hey, you saw something, it got diagnosed and somebody signed it up for surgery within the next week or something like that. So I'm not sure how you would ever track that, but the number of steps you have to go through, I get the sense is part of the problem. Yeah, Pam, you, oh, sorry. Uh, just real quick, you hit, hit the nail on the head. So we have uh, a little bit of a spoiler alert. We have another uh, paper coming mm-hmm. out at some point, hopefully soon-ish on the, uh, the risk factors for delayed surgery for tibial spines, and then some of the clinical consequences of that. And in that, we were able to look a little bit more at, um, have you seen another clinician provider before referral to the, the treating orthopedic surgeon? Um, and so it was broken down into like primary care doc, uh, other orthopedists and so forth. And so we did find that, again, somewhat common sense, but if you saw another, another doc before the treating surgeon, then that resulted in delays uh, in your care. And then the impact, potential impact of delayed surgery for these, so meaning three or more weeks after the initial uh, injury, potential impact um, is a longer case duration. Um, there were more meniscus tears seen in the delayed group, although the mechanism of that is a little unclear, probably not like ACLs. Um, and then if you had a, a, a long case, so like if your case lasted over two and a half hours, plus you had delayed surgery, then you were at higher risk for arthrofibrosis. So still parsing some of that out, but, um, you know, seeing multiple, multiple docs before the treating surgeon was, was absolutely a risk factor for all that. And I think, again, a lot of reasons for that, right? Rare injury can be missed early on, and then someone else catches it later, or you see an orthopedic surgeon who's not really familiar or comfortable treating it. And then, I mean, there's a POSNA survey done, I think a couple of years back, which showed that even in POSNA, all pediatric orthopedists, there was a pretty small subset of folks that treat more than like five of these a year. Um, and so, you know, maybe it's waiting till you actually are able to see someone, um, who's familiar with it, whether that's sort of patient choice, looking for second opinions or just no one around to see. Um, so great, great, great point. And I think that absolutely does play a role here. Um, Cordelia, I'm sorry, I cut, cut you off. There. No, no, no. It's, I mean, it's such important work. I, I actually, I was going to say, I think we even missed like the first line, which is access to an athletic trainer. 
right? Because probably just having somebody on the sidelines who can who can say like this is this is actually a big injury. There's an effusion. You're not able to walk. You you actually have to be seen sooner rather than later. And that's your first like contact with with medical care for a sports injury. And so and that's when where we are likely to see another dichotomy based on um, based on funding. Actually, the thing one of the things I was going to comment on is because I, I think. My question to you was going to be, you know, what are the outcomes, right? Is the outcome of a delayed a surgery, is it truly arthrofibrosis or, you know, what's the, what's the complication? Because it has been suggested to me that if a tibial spine fracture is recognized early and then, and then mobilized almost like a prehab, then, then actually surgical, um, surgical, so that I don't know about surgical time. Cause then you have to wonder if there's a little bit of healing and then you have to have mobilize the fragment. Is that a problem? But if you can maintain or regain and maintain motion before a tibial spine arthroscopic fixation, the way that you could before an, an ACL reconstruction, then could you actually decrease the risk of arthrofibrosis after? And so, um, and, and so and so maybe we'll we'll actually go to delaying surgery now, not delaying recognition and access to prehab. But I think it's an, an, another thing that we don't talk about a lot in terms of treating tibial spine fractures that makes sense. Oh, that's a great point. That's something that I learned from you guys on this on this podcast on a previous episode, and I have changed my algorithm and now I, I send them for prehab just like an ACL if they're going to get surgery. It's it's hard to know how we can change any of this stuff, what, what you can actually make better. I wonder if certain insurances having a requirement for a referral to see a specialist is part of the problem and could be something we could actually target and try to, you know, encourage presentation to an orthopedist without a referral to speed up that process. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's in the discussion part of this, this uh, article, we kind of go, we, we touch on that. I mean, that's definitely one of the things that slows it down along the lines of what Pam was saying uh, in terms of seeing other docs first and then, you know, waiting and, and stuff like that. But, you know, to Cordelia's point about uh, the presence of athletic trainers, I think in general to sort of expand that idea, it's the presence of just kind of like that first line of defense, right? So athletic trainers, but also pediatricians, folks like that, that are kind of on the sidelines or in the primary care offices um, who can recognize that, uh, like, for example, right, to me, when, I, when we talk to the pediatricians and just go over like general musculoskeletal stuff, give talks and stuff, I just sort of say like, it's like non-contact injury with a pop and a huge hemarthrosis, like have a high index of suspicion that something is bad there. And I think there's been papers that kind of show that, that the majority of traumatic knee effusions in kids have some real finding, right? right? And so, um, you know, that's somebody that you want to fast track them to an orthopedist, fast track imaging, get an MRI, you know, quickly and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think having um, folks like sort of on the front lines, if you will, that are familiar, comfortable with these kind of things, uh, you know, even just in a general sense, like, huh, non-contact, pop, big effusion, tons of pain, <laughs> like bad, you know, um, doesn't need to know the ins and outs of tibial spine fractures and Myers-McKeever and all that kind of stuff, but just enough to kind of like get the kid in the system and get the ball rolling. I think that can go a long way, um, but definitely a lot of, lot of uh, aspects of this whole thing that need to be addressed. Well, I had one last comment, which is simply, these are really rare, which we know, but like when you were saying somebody might do five a year, I mean, if you actually look, if there were 434 patients across 10 institutions across 10 years, that's less than five an institution a year, right? So, and, and so, and that's, I mean, I, I, that's why actually multi-center, you know, research is so important. So we can pool our data and our experience and start to learn. 
Um, but I think it's also, it also is a barrier to um, recognition in the community, I think. Just to like speak to that, and I, out of curiosity, I feel like in the last six months, I have seen a humongous number of tibial spine fractures. Like there was maybe a six or eight week stretch. I feel like I was fixing one or two a week and like, it was crazy. And I've never quite seen anything like it. The number of kids I have right now that are somewhere between like, you know, two and two weeks and three months out from tibial spine surgery is crazy to me. And so I was just curious. Did you put all the banana peels on the football field? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and they're from like, one of them was like a bike injury or whatever, but it was like a soccer player and then a football player and then like baseball. It's been just crazy across the board. And I didn't know if any of that had to do with like the fact that maybe kids weren't doing as much for a little while. And then went back because here sports started again for the most part in the spring, at least like high school sports. And um, I just I just wonder if there's something related to like bone density, bone strength or something where like I'm just seeing so many. And a lot of them are like, you know, 13, 14 years old, um, some younger, but it's just been a little bit weird because I don't think I've ever done this many in a year, let alone in like a two month stretch. Yeah. So we actually, I guess, I don't know We're I'm not too far down the road from, from you. Um, yeah. and I had, the, I had the same experience actually <laughs> randomly, like kind of mostly over the summer, I, I would say, yeah. um, you know, but yeah, I had, I think like eight or nine in like a two to three month span or something like that, yeah, which exactly. for tibial spines, it's like a lot. I felt like Ted Ganley over here or something, you know, like <laughs> doing all the tibial spines in the world. But yeah, it was crazy. I, I don't know. I, and I, my hunch is that it's a little bit of like the post COVID, you know, shaking off the rust and coming back. I mean, I think a lot of folks have described a little bit of a spike in overall injuries when mm-hmm. kind of sports started again and schools reopened. So maybe it's that, I don't know. Um, your, your bone density idea is kind of interesting too, though, right? Because I think we talk about, one of the things with tibial spines mechanistically is like, you know, the, the sort of properties of the bone in that part of the knee are a little bit different at certain age. And that makes it like a weak point. Um, so was that exacerbated by inactivity during COVID and then maybe you're more vulnerable? I don't know, <laughs> but um, it is kind of interesting. I, I've, I saw the same thing now. I don't know if it's just kind of lightning striking twice in Wisconsin and Illinois, but, um, yeah. but it is kind of interesting. Sounds like a question for the tibial spine research <laughs> interest group. Yeah. We can do like a regional, um, regional incidents, like right. during and post COVID yeah. or something. Check their vitamin D too. Yeah, it made yeah. me think of uh, an episode we did recently with Jen Beck about uh, vitamin D and bone health and the term she coined COVID jellyfish about kids who spent 18 months in their room playing video games and we're coming back and having all these weird injuries that they wouldn't normally have. And so I think yeah. there may really be something to that. Yeah. yeah. I, I've seen nutritional rickets um, from, from a pizza and pop tart diet. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I'm not, I, that's like, that's in the chart <laughs> and, uh, and not going outside for a year and a half. It's, I mean, I think we're going to see all sorts of stuff like this. Yeah. That glow from, from halo doesn't just, doesn't quite do it, I guess. All right. So now we're going from common stuff to rare stuff to really obscure stuff. So from JPO, also from Rady, uh, but with no Andy Pinnock this time, his his partner in crime, Eric Edmonds over there, 
This study is called Functional Outcomes of Arthroscopic Ostrigonum Excision in Adolescents. So the authors took out 12 ostrigona over six years, all endoscopically. The surgery seemed to help, but results were not as good as previous adult literature. 40% of patients could not continue their sports. So the authors recommend counseling families about the risk of persistent symptoms after the surgery. So my first question is, am I, am I missing these? I've, I've never excised an adolescent ostrigonum. Have you, are I you have guys... done an older adolescent, like skeletally mature and a high level ballet dancer. But I feel like your, your indications for doing it in the times you would do it, like this would be a company ballet dancer, right? Whose career is ballet, not the 12 year old who messes around. <laughs> so um, I agree. I mean, even they, they had a small case series over a pretty big stretch, but I, I, I actually want to take a, I just want to acknowledge that this is cool research because I think it takes a lot to say, Hey, look, I've been doing this and like, it hasn't gone so well. <laughs> let's, yeah. let's talk about it. Right. Um, I think that, cause I, I think so like, I mean, I, I just think so many of us would be really reluctant to publish and start the conversation. So I just, I wanted to acknowledge that I think it's a really important conversation and it, and it's kind of awesome that somebody was willing to start it. Very true. I, these, I treat, I have seen some, I've seen a handful that I thought might come to surgery and I've tried really hard, like soccer players. One was the biggest, um, awesome I've ever seen that I think he actually had a little fracture through his synchondrosis. And so I treated it like a fracture and it got better. Um, but, and, uh, and then he has little flares every once in a while, but is not interested in surgery and I'm not interested in doing it. And so I think he's fine. Um, I had a patient recently who, um, I was, a, I was a second opinion for who's had, she was 13, had it, um, arthroscopically resected or endoscopically resected and, and has had persistent swelling and pain. And so sort of fits with this, like it's not always a home run. And, and then, because then, I mean, part of this discussion was, you know, the adult literature says endoscopic may be superior to open. The adult literature says everybody does well. And so, because then I think we have to start questioning all of our approaches to it, maybe like, because in my hands, at least I, I, as I was reading this and thinking like, I'd probably, you know, even though I've heard Mike Bush's talk about coaxial portals a bunch of times and, you know, and I can, am comfortable with a scope, I would probably still open these. Um, just so I could make sure I saw what I needed to see and do what I needed to do and protect what I needed to protect. Yeah, that's a great point. I was thinking the same thing when I was looking at the scope pictures in the paper. I was like, I don't know if it would look like that when I was looking at it. I don't know if it would be that clear. <laughs> no, no, it totally would. Yeah, it would. <laughs> <laughs> I've only ever done it open for what it's worth. <laughs> yeah, Cordelia, I, I don't, is Don Rose still over there? Yeah. Is he still doing it? Yeah. So the, well, you know, we the, do have a lot of dancers. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. I mean, I, I, my, I, I have plenty of experience, but as a resident and uh, it was with Don Rose, you know, taking care of all those da dancers. But yeah, I, I will say in practice, this is not something that's, I think, really come through my door a ton. And frankly, even if it did, I would probably try to exhaust every single non operative uh, measure possible. And I think it's really about the indications here. Um, but yeah, I, I would not fain, fain be an expert on this by any means. I feel like it's also sort of about the diagnosis. Like how comfortable would you guys feel with your diagnosis? They do have some, also some nice pictures of the MRIs in the paper, but they even describe how they present with different edema patterns on the MRI, which, you know, makes it even, even harder, even in these patients who you're pretty sure have it. Uh, well, and then you have to also question the role of uh, ankle instability, right? Because at least one of their patients had concomitant stabilization yep. and then several had um, subsequent. And so 
so I, I think you're right. I mean, I think first it's like, Hey, you better, you have to really make sure it's the correct diagnosis. And then, um, and, and, and then if it comes to surgery, cause you've really exhausted non-op, then, you know, probably it's a do what you're most comfortable with. But I, 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 my suspicion is this, I mean, this wasn't technique. I think this is a tough problem. I think it's a really good, um, place for selective, like ultrasound guided injections prior mm. to any surgical intervention on anything. Right. Cause symptoms of this are very similar to like FHL tendinopathy kind of stuff and uh, like the ankle instability point and all that kind of stuff. So don't even need to use steroid, right? You just put in some local anesthetic at certain spots and make sure you're really, really clear on that. This is the problem before you do anything. Great point. All right. Next up also in the realm of the obscure uh, surface related high school football game injuries on pad and no pad field. So this is an AJSM article by Michael Myers, just in time for Halloween. <laughs> and, um, as some background here, you know, Dom and I were just talking about it. We both thought it was pretty interesting. I learned a lot reading it. Apparently NCAA and NFL fields usually have sort of a heavy infill system under the artificial turf. And there's a trend in high schools to use a lighter infill system with pads which is more expensive and the manufacturers say that it's safer, you know, pay some extra for the children. Right. So this study actually found more injuries with pads, especially knee injuries and also more severe injuries. And there was no difference in concussions, which is arguably the, the biggest concern. So it was a big study, 658 varsity high school games from 58 schools. And, uh, you know, I don't know if there's too many takeaways for us as, as a clinician, except I guess you can tell the high schools you cover not to spend that money on a padded field. Maybe if there's one takeaway for me, it was the fact that out of 658 games, there were 795 injuries. I mean, we all know there's some risk to football, but there's there's a number to it right there over one notable injury per game. So aside from being interesting, anybody have any other takeaways from this or glean anything? I have just like a hypothesis of why that could potentially be like, because they talk about this lighter weight infill pad system thing. So in my head, I'm picturing like, lower density foam compared to like very dense foam that they might be using in the college world. So we've all had people balance on a pillow, right? Like, is there any degree where that, would you even feel that on the field? I don't know if you'd even feel that, but could that at all create any degree of like instability of the surface unknowingly because of the shock value part of it? I think, I mean, I think this study really just speaks to the commodification of pediatric sports, right? And how, if you say things like, well, this is going to decrease concussion because it's softer and it's going to decrease ACL injuries. And then all of a sudden the price tag can go up 80,000 bucks and, and you'll have people buy into it. And so, so then it, and then it really then highlights the importance of using data to help people make those decisions about where they put their money. Cause that 80,000 bucks is a trainer salary um, or more, right? And so, which would be like way better spent in terms of concussion, um, maybe, maybe not prevention even, but management. Um, Cause this didn't prevent concussion at all. I, so I just, I think that's where it's sort of recognizing how, um, how, how slick we've become at, at marketing and making pediatric sports a business and, and how to, um, maybe help, uh, you know, maybe, and right, like for, for surgeons, like we don't have a big role in this, but in as much as we are part of a discussion, then, then I think that's something to highlight. 
you know, to Pam's point with a little softer service, it'd be really interesting if they had a comparison to grass, which I assume would be a little softer. I don't, I don't actually know, but to see if there was a different in injury rate between artificial, artificial well, and, and grass. You know, you, you've got to imagine that um, the people who've already invested in these padded fields are really all about their high school football teams, right? Like it's their thing in that area. But yeah, if they ever saw this, it would be like, oh, Wow. Okay. That was a waste. <laughs> I also don't think like you could ever compare injuries in a college game. I'm glad they didn't do that for a second. When I was reading it, I thought that, but injuries in a college field, college game to like a high school game. Cause that's just totally different ball game. Yeah. Good point. Um, all right. Last up another JBJS article. There's a lot of P sports in the, in the journal recently. This one's from TSRH about elbow overuse injuries in female gymnasts. And the authors had noticed that uh, gymnasts were getting two different kinds of pathologies in the elbow, specifically in the lateral compartment of the elbow. One, capitellar OCD, which I think we're all relatively familiar with. And two, less commonly, radial head stress fractures. So the goal here was to study how they're different. They found 39 OCDs and 19 radial head stress fractures over five years which seems like a lot, but I, I guess there's a lot of gymnastics in Dallas. I don't know. I've got one gymnast friend. He's from Dallas. They found that many features were what you would expect. The radial head stress fractures presented more acutely. The OCDs had sort of lingering symptoms for longer before they came in. There's more pain with valgus stress for the radial head stress fractures, which I guess makes sense. Seems like maybe you're putting stress more directly on the injury. The radial head stress fractures were more likely to fully recover. Only a third of the OCDs got back to uh, gymnastics. And the radial head stress fractures were more common in the higher level gymnasts. Have you guys seen radial head stress fractures? Are you, are you seeing these? Yeah, admittedly, you know, uh, at our place, I think uh, any of these that do sort of exist and come through probably go to my uh, non-operative uh, sports partners who are, you know, they're, they're, they've got a whole system set up for stress fractures and the workup and, you know, counseling and all that kind of stuff. So I think a lot of that comes to them. So I, I have not really been seeing the stress fractures. The OCDs obviously is a different story, but uh, curious is if anyone else has uh, much experience with these. You know, you mentioned going to non-op providers, but in this study, 50% yeah. of them failed non-op and needed surgery. 80% yeah. of the OCDs needed surgery, but 50% of the radial head stress fractures. I mean, I, that, that, I mean, I think that's why this study is strong, right? Is because it's just, I think this is a, a place that's got a wealth of experience treating high-level gymnasts just by you know, virtue of geographic location. And so they're sort of telling us like, this is, this is what you, this is what we see. Um, and, and this is how it's treated in a way that we, you know, with, with numbers that, that we might not otherwise see. I think, I mean, my takeaways are, man, if you got to have something, have a radial head stress fracture, um, <laughs> right? And if you really have to not have something, bilateral OCD is like the kiss of death for your gymnastics career. <laughs> so, the, and then I wonder, you know, always to me, when I'm thinking about prevention, right? Like this is, um, this is an overuse injury that happened because of repeated exposure to, uh, to a physical activity. And so is there something that, you know, we can do to decrease that? And so sure you can decrease exposure, which, you know, these like extremely high level gymnasts are not going to, are not going to kind of stand for. Um, or tumble for or flip for whatever. But, but then you have to wonder, so as you start to look at like the, the valgus alignment of the elbows, and it'd be interesting to know if, the, if there was like some more dynamic valgus too. And then if some kind of brace or somewhat way to like unload that lateral compartment dynamically with use, 
what might be able to prevent some of these. You mentioned something about the shoulder motion and wrist motion. Maybe if there's stiffness in the wrist or shoulder, putting you know different uh, a sc- different scale of, of force across the elbow joint. So maybe focusing you know some rehab on those areas. Or maybe it'll be like the little league pitchers where yeah. I mean I know this is not we've have we're not agreed, but like where you're not allowed to do a slider or whatever kind of pitch it is until you are had hit a certain level. Like maybe you're not allowed to do some of these skills until you hit a certain level of, of maturity or strength, or you're not allowed to go on point until you can demonstrate you've got that ankle stability. You know, maybe it's about like rather than pushing skill acquisition, maybe it's about pushing like readiness for it. I also wonder if they're exactly the same mechanism. Right. Like, I mean, it's easy to think it's impact loading, maybe with a little bit of valgus, but I actually had a kid with a um, ulnar shaft stress fracture. So it got me kind of reading about that a little bit. And there's only case reports, but um, repetitive pronation supination in like a softball thrower or baseball pitcher, you can actually get these forearm stress injuries. Um, So is it exactly the same for both of them? I don't know if you would know the answer or not, but I guess clinically, if they present similarly where they have pain with more valgus loading versus is forearm rotation, the problem and that kind of thing. You know, I just, I wonder if there's an element of that with the radial head sided injury as well. I think I've seen these in retrospect, um, for, kind of the slightly older patient who maybe had one previously and their radial head looks a little bit funny, radial head and neck looks a little funny. And like, you kind of learn that they've had elbow pain for a long time. So I don't think it's when they've actually are acutely in the radial neck stress fracture stage, but when they've rested and they still have kind of the aftermath of it, almost like gymnast wrists would kind of give you a potentially longer term issue with your wrist because looking at some of the pictures that they showed in the article, like I've seen some radial head necks that look funny like that, but yeah, it sort of collapsed a little in their acute phase. It's just like, there was kind of the aftermath of it. Mm. And that's, well, that's always the hard thing with kids though, too, right. Is like, what's, what's a normal variation or normal variant versus actually that's a stress fracture. I mean, well, and that's why MRI and other modalities are helpful, but I feel like some of these, you might say, Oh, you know, if it was present on the other side, like, all right, well, could just be a variant. Well, let's wrap it up right there. That is all we've got for today. Thank you to everyone for listening. Huge. Thank you to all of my co-hosts here again. That is Nirash Patel from Lurie children's hospital in Chicago, Pam Lang from university of Wisconsin, Cordelia Carter from NYU and down Gargiulo from children's hospital of new Orleans. We will see you next time. And I'm already looking forward to it. 